think so. Well, we have a lot to praise God for, don't we? It's exciting to see God at work among His people and in His people. And I want to, before we dive into His Word, I want to pray uh, for us that we would have hearts that are open to follow it and obey it. So let's, let's do pray. God, our Heavenly Father, uh, Your Word encourages us and it confronts us. Father, we pray this morning as we come before Your Word and as we uh, look into it that we would come not with an attitude of, of, I wonder what will be here for me to learn, but I wonder what will be here for me to obey. Father, help us to allow the Word to get from our head to our heart. And help us to live in light of it. Father, we know that it's only by your Holy Spirit that any of us ever changes from who we are naturally to looking like Jesus. And Father, that is our desire, that we would all look like Jesus. That when he comes, he would recognize us in the reflection that we are. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, preaching the New Testament letters is always a challenge because at the end, what is often happening is that the writer is tying up all of the loose ends and addressing anything he hasn't addressed yet. And so at the end of the chapter, uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 16, Paul is kind of bullet pointing some things that he wants the Corinthians to remember, some things he wants them to understand. I've said this before, but it remains true with with reference to this letter, that this is in some ways kind of like if you are a parent writing a letter to your kid who is in college, and you want to bullet point some stuff at the end. You know, it's good to hear from you. I'm glad you're doing well. Uh, And then you say things like this, get enough sleep, go to class, do not hang around with the wrong people. Do not get another tattoo. You know, these kinds of things, right? Things that are important for you to remember for your edification and ongoing sanctification and so forth, right? And, and Paul is doing the same thing. He's got a number of topics that he's just going to briefly address and then, uh, you know, kind of give a final exhortation. And so uh, they don't outline very well except topically. And the argument doesn't flow because he's not making an argument. He's just making some statements that he wants them to submit to and obey. And so uh, many times, therefore, it is there are some uncomfortable sections of this. And I don't apologize for that. Not only because all Scripture is God-breathed, but also because I think that it is very often our discomfort that causes us to grow. Anybody who has ever been to the gym knows this. The old saying is, no pain, what? No gain, right? If if you're not suffering and sweating, you're not benefiting. And we're going to talk today about some things that may make you a little uncomfortable. We're going to talk about money, for one thing. And I don't like to talk about that. In fact, I think this is my first sermon all year on the issue of money. But it does make people uncomfortable. 
Uh, we're going to talk about submission to leadership. That makes people really uncomfortable. But we're going to talk about it anyway because it's in here. And I hope that as we go through and as we talk about these things in very practical ways, that it makes us uncomfortable enough to change. Because there are two responses to discomfort. One is to quit. I went to the gym. It was miserable. That was the last time I went. Right? And there are lots and lots of, of, of January gym memberships that get canceled before February arrives. Amen? And the same thing happens many times as we go through the Scripture. We come to a section we are not all that excited about, and we just go, I'm not going to read that again. I'm going to not highlight that. I'm going to skip over that in my devotional reading. But I'm going to come to the parts where it says God loves me and He wants to give me abundant life. I'll underline that, maybe get it mounted on a plaque and hang it on my wall. But the sections that have to do with giving and submission and obedience and putting off sin and embracing holiness, I'm going to not deal with that at all. We want to deal with all of God's Word. And so with that uh, preparation in mind, as we pursue spiritual growth together, I want you to open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Uh, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable to, uh, that I should go also, they will accompany me. Now, in case you're curious, this is the section that deals with money. Uh, there's an old joke among preachers that you get uh, three opportunities to preach on money. You preach one sermon, giving will go up 10%. Preach two sermons, giving will go up 20%. You preach three sermons, you have to look for a new church. And, <laughs> and that is because money is a topic that makes people really uncomfortable. And the reason is, is that money gets close to the heart. It gets into the area of your priorities and how you spend it because it's one of the most limited resources you have very often makes people very uncomfortable when they get prodded on these things. Um, the idea of giving sacrificially, by the way, usually means sacrificing something that is good that I would like to have for me or for my kids or for my spouse or for someone else. And there never seems to be enough of either money or time, and so we're always reluctant to commit ourselves to offering God something we really wish we had more of to start with. But know this for sure, that how you spend your time, how you spend your money, the things that you have that are limited from God, how you choose to spend them, does have something important to say about the state of your heart. And what you value. I've said this before. I'll say it in your small group notes today, in fact. That if you give me access to your checkbook and your calendar, I know what you find important. And I know within seconds. And if you do the same kind of evaluation, you will see the same thing. 
And so Paul is trying to help the Corinthians to set God-honoring priorities. And he is taking a collection for the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem at this time is going through a famine, and therefore they are in need, and they need help. And so he's taking a collection for them. And it's part of, and, and taking that collection is from Gentile churches primarily. Uh, the churches that Paul established were largely Gentile. There were Jews in them, but they were largely Gentile. And part of that is a way of linking together the churches so that he, they understand uh, practically what they understand theologically, that there's a unity of the Spirit that needs to be maintained. And part of the way that that is maintained is by meeting needs that are very practical uh, that you might encourage one another spiritually. And so these Gentile Christians are told, you need to give to these Jewish brothers and sisters who are back in Jerusalem who are suffering. And he's going to mention that collection again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9 are all about this collection that evidently has not come through in the way the Corinthians were supposed to do it. Uh, but along the way, he gives us some principles that are just as applicable to us in terms of our giving as they are to the Corinthians with reference to theirs. Uh, first of all, the first thing he says that by way of principle is this, that giving should be regular. Look at verse 2. It says, on the first day of every week. In case you're curious, that's Sunday. He doesn't call it Sunday because... Back in those days, there were still a lot of pagans, and they worshipped the sun on Sunday. And so he doesn't call it Sunday. He doesn't want to honor the sun god or worship of a pagan deity. And so he calls it on the first day of the week. He says, so in other words, the idea is regularly. That this is a regular part of your life. That this is not an occasional thing. This is not a when I remember kind of a thing, this is a regular thing. This is something that ought to be happening uh, on a specific, at a specific time on a specific day. Uh, Karen and I give once a month, every month. Uh, we do all of our giving at the same time. We sit down and we write out all the bills and write a bunch of checks. And I go off to the post office and so forth. But we do all that once a month. And it's every month. And we don't miss. Why? Because it's regular. It's part of our life. It's part of the routine of what we do. And if, some, if that would ever not happen, we'd go, man, we messed up somewhere because it needs to be regular. In addition, it should be universal. Universal. Look at the next part of the verse. It says, each of you. Each of you. He's addressing this to the church. So if you consider yourself part of a church, each of you, right? Whatever church you are part of, each of you. Um, nobody is excluded. And let me just say this. Now, I don't know if this is true at our church because, honestly, I don't know what anybody gives. And I make it my business not to know what anybody gives. But in an average church, just being very practical, about 20% of the average church gives zero or very little above that in a year. In fact, statistically speaking, 
if every person in the average church was on public assistance and gave 10% of their income on public assistance, the average church budget would double. Now again, I know nothing about individual giving in our church. I make it my business not to know. Because it's not about what I know, it's about you and your relationship with the Lord. But, bear that in mind. It should be universal. Everybody should give something. And of course, it should be also systematic. Next part of the verse here. Uh, he says, put something aside and store it up. It should come about, in other words, as part of a plan. Ought to be something that's planned, that is thought of in advance. That it isn't a haphazard thing. It's part of your plan to honor God with your finances. And if you have no plan, I'll assure you of this, that what you're planning to do is not to honor God with your finances. So it needs to be part of a systematic objective plan. Put something aside and store it up. And it also should be proportional, as he may prosper. Now, some of us have jobs where we make a lot of money. Objectively, a lot of money. And some of us are lucky to have jobs. Amen? Some of you may be thinking, yeah, right about now, you're one of those. Uh, and that may be true. Uh, but here's the reality. Some of us, nevertheless, don't give in proportion to the blessing we have. It ought to be proportional to what we are, how, we, how God blesses us. We ought to bless others in return. It ought to be proportional. Uh, most Christians don't obey that. Average giving in the, in, the, in the country right now, average evangelical giving. And evangelicals, by the way, are far and away the most generous people in the world. But nevertheless, the average is about 3.5% of your income is given to church or other spiritual causes. Ought to be proportional to your blessing. Uh, last of all, giving should be free. He says, so that there will be no collecting when I come. Paul doesn't go in for big emotional appeals. And if you've been here a while, you know that I don't either. Um, we don't as a church. We don't tell you a big story about all of the needs that you're meeting and how, we, how much we need your money and all the rest of that. We don't do that. Why? Because we think it's unbiblical and ungodly. That's why. And so we don't do that. What we do is we present the need. And we say, God has given you resources. He's given you instructions on what to do with them. And we expect you to be obedient to God's word. And that is Paul's instruction too. He, he doesn't want to go around with a cup to every Corinthian's house and go, have you given this week? Have you given this week? Did you give this week? He's not going to do that. He says, I don't want this to come across 
as something I'm demanding from you. I want it to be freely given. I want this to be part of your worship before God. I want you to enjoy this. People say sometimes, give until it hurts. No, give until it feels good. (laughs) Because here's the reality. As you make your offering before God, it ought to be something that you celebrate getting to do. I get to make my offering before God this week. I get to prosper so that I can prosper other people and the ministry of the Spirit in the body of Christ. That this is not about me. This is not about making sure the lights stay on at church or that the pastor is paid or any of the rest of that. This is about God. And this is about freely offering to Him out of what He has freely given to us. Amen? All right. One other principle I want to bring out of the text here, and it doesn't necessarily apply to all of us, but it does apply to some of us. He says this here, When I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And here's the principle that he's making there. He's saying that we are going to take the highest possible care and precaution with the gifts that are given. That in other words, he says, you pick out the guys that you want to take this gift. I'm not going to put it in my pocket. I'll go with the guys if you think that's a good idea. But I don't want anything to do with it. I apply this this way as an example. I don't see any money in this church. The elders don't see any either. We don't know what anybody gives. We don't have a report on anybody ever. And you know why? So that you might know that we take the highest possible care with gifts that are given. And that you might trust us that it's not about our relationship with you has nothing to do with money. Nothing. It's not influenced by that. It's not colored by that. It's not shaped by that in any way. But we pick out people in this church, Eric as an example, and Dave. And we have two different roles. We have one guy who writes checks and one guy who receives, along with some other guys who go in and count, how much money came in. So we have a separation between the check writing and the record keeping as to what came in. And we do that in obedience to the Scriptures so that we might have the highest possible levels of integrity when it comes to money. And that's important And the elders, of course, set a budget year by year, and we give account. Uh, We're very open to giving account as to how each dollar was spent. And we can run you a report on any line item that you would like to know. So that you can have confidence that when your money comes in here, that we know where it went and what it was spent on to the penny. And we know. And that's good, and that's holy, because godliness dictates no less than the highest possible standards of accountability. Now, we're going to move on. Um, 
But before we do, I want you just to take a second and consider your own personal finances for a minute. In light of this text, are you obedient to these principles? Is your giving regular and universal and systematic and proportional and free or not? And if not, don't hang your head. Don't go, oh, I'm so ashamed. Okay. Shame does not change anything. What changes something is godly repentance that says, I'm going to turn around the direction of my life. And I'm going to do it in obedience to the, to the word by the power of the spirit. And if necessary, I'm going to seek counsel and get my finances in shape so it doesn't seem like such a burden. Because a lot, of, a lot of Americans, I don't know about a lot of you, but a lot of Americans have debt up to their eyeballs. And so every dollar that they give feels like a dollar they don't have. And so if you need counsel on that, we can get you counsel on that. How to get out of debt. So that this can feel like worship and freedom rather than, oh man, they want another dollar I haven't got. Okay? Um, if, on the other hand, you are giving and you are giving joyfully and you are giving proportionally and you are giving regularly, enjoy the blessing of God on this. Because God does bless those who are faithful to give. He doesn't I'm not a TV preacher. I don't know if you've noticed, but I'm not, I'm not one of those guys. I don't like those guys, most of them. And I'm not going to tell you, well, if you give to God and we'll send you this towel, it's been blessed, you know. Or, or if you give, you know, a dollar to God, he'll get you $100 back in blessing. No, I'm not going to say that. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says that he honors those who honor him. And that he blesses those who are a blessing to others. It doesn't specify exactly how that works. I know that I know this for sure. Karen and I have given every time, every month that we have been married. And you know what? We've never gone hungry. We've never had to go live in a box somewhere at the park. You know. We, we've always, God has always provided for us. He's met every need we've ever had, every time. And that looks a whole lot like God's blessing to me. God is faithful and he loves us. And he will meet your needs just as he has met mine. And just as he's met lots of people. So let's move on. All right. Um, this has to do with. God's will and how that fits in. Now, if you're wondering what God's will is or how that works, pay attention because here's some in information and insight into that. Paul says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, there are three things I want you to see in this section of the Scripture. Number one, I want you to see Paul's concern for the Corinthians and his love for them. 
He wants to be with them. He hopes to have their support in his next phase of ministry, but they are not simply a revenue source. If they were, he would just pass through on his way. But he's saying, look, I want to be there for a good while. I want to even maybe spend the winter with you. Why? Because he loves them. We'll see that that's the last thing he says at the end of the book. Remember, I love you. Uh, Number two, I want you to notice how Paul's ministry plans, he makes ministry plans. In fact, he tells them specifically what he's doing. I want to do this, and then I want to do that, and then I want to do this. But he also says, he subjects those plans to this. He says, if the Lord permits. In other words, he recognizes that while I might make some plans, that the Lord does work through my circumstances and in my circumstances, and that he is leading me in a direction that might not necessarily be the same as my plans. Or as the psalmist says, in his heart a man prepares his way, but the Lord directs his steps. That things that maybe you had planned and outlined and and thought would be a good idea won't necessarily always pan out the way you thought. But nevertheless, God is leading and He is directing and He is guiding and He is working through your circumstances and in your life to put you in certain places at certain times with certain circumstances and certain people in your life. And that God is working. So he says, by all, so in other words, we might say in application, I'm going to make my plans. I'm going to plan, let's say, uh, to work for Caterpillar when I grow up. Or I'm going, to, uh, I'm going to go on this trip. Or I'm going to do this. Or I'm going to start this ministry. Or I'm going to uh, marry this person. But nevertheless, we say, if the Lord wills, as James says, or as Paul says here, if the Lord permits, I'm going to do these things. We submit our plans to the Lord. We love Him, and we want to follow His direction. And so we recognize that He has free reign to step into our life at any point and say, no, this is where you're going to go, and this is what you're going to do. And we say, yes, I'll obey where you go. Now, number three, notice how Paul describes his work in Ephesus. He says, a wide door for effective ministry has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Now, I think that's significant, and I think it's worth paying attention to, because we often assume that the two do not coexist. That on the one hand, if we have a wide door for effective ministry, that the absence of adversaries is indicative of the presence of a wide door. But in fact, the opposite is often the case, that it is the presence of adversaries that is, in, that is indicating to us there is a wide door for ministry here. Do you know why? Because Satan fights hardest where he is most likely to lose. When, you are, when the battle is going poorly, you concentrate your forces there. And here's the deal. We have this assumption as Americans that if things are going, that things are easy, that things are effective. Not necessarily so. And here's what I want to tell you as an example with reference to the culture in which we live. 
We are moving day by day as the United States of America closer and closer back to the culture in which Paul was writing this book. Where there's a multiplicity of gods, none of which are Christian, where Christians become an embattled minority in the midst of hostility, and where they proclaim values and morality that is totally antithetical to the surrounding culture. Does that sound familiar to anyone? And you know what Paul says? A wide door for effective ministry has opened, and there are adversaries. Don't assume that because we encounter opposition that we're being ineffective. The opposite may well be the case. You know what happened in Ephesus? If you read the book of Acts about Paul's ministry in Ephesus, it was some of the most effective ministry he ever had. It ended in a riot. Any of you all ever been the subject of a riot? Raise your hand if that's true. Because you proclaimed the gospel, and then they held a riot in town. (laughs) It's never happened to me either. Right? But you know what else happened? All these people came to Christ to to the extent that the idol trade went down, which is why they had the riot. People brought out the equivalent of 50,000 pieces of gold in these magic scrolls that they believed in as part of their pagan worship, and they burned them in public. Huge financial sacrifice and cost in following Christ. And they said, I'm leaving all that garbage behind. In fact, you can set it on fire, though it has tremendous value. Anybody like to have 50,000 gold pieces today at 1400 bucks a piece? I'll assure you, we'll be funding retirement in Tahiti for a couple of us, right? <laughs> on that. Uh, that would be great. But these people are like, forget about the monetary. I'm leaving my paganism behind, and you can destroy all that. The widest, most effective ministry Paul ever had is happening as he's writing this letter to the Corinthians. But there's lots of opposition at the same time. Can I encourage you, men and women of God, that we may be entering into a period where, as, as a country and as a church where we're going to have lots of opposition. But you know what? Wide doors for ministry too. And it's not necessarily an indicator that we're not obeying God if we encounter opposition. In fact, it may well be the opposite. That it is the fact that we are being increasingly obedient and faithful that opposition comes. Last thing, let's look at what Paul says here in the last two verses. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him, help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now, as you're reading the book of 1 Corinthians, if you've been here through the whole thing, you know that these people had lots of problems. Amen? Uh, They're doing things like getting drunk at communion. They're doing things like engaging publicly and, and... and in front of everybody in immorality and proud of it. They're doing things like taking one another to court. They're doing things like having fights at church over spiritual gifts. 
it's a mess. Amen? How many of you, if you thought of yourself as maybe going into ministry as a pastor, would think, sign me up for that, that dog right there, right? This is why Paul writes to, to them and says, now, your brothers from your church, which we're going to look at them next week, are coming with this letter and Timothy. I'm sending Pastor Timothy to iron all this out and to help put all this to right. So here's what he's saying. When he says, put him at ease among you, what's he saying? Don't give him a rough time. <laughs> okay? You people are rough as a corn cob. <laughs> you, you don't give my buddy a rough time. You put him at ease. You do what he says. He is doing God's work as I am. Let no one of you despise him. Help him on his way in peace. Be at peace with this guy, with this brother. He is a faithful servant of God, so you treat him with honor. And you send him on his way to minister happy that he has been with you. Rather than going, glad that's over. Thank you, Jesus. We endured. You know, um, and here's the point of this, okay? And let me say, just in advance, just in advance, let me say this. So nobody thinks that I have any axe to grind here. Because I don't. That you all are an easy group of people to lead and to pastor. And I love you. And one of the things I am thankful for is that nobody needs to write this on my behalf. Amen? We have, a, we have experienced God's blessing on this church. And we are at peace. And we love each other. And I love each of you. And so I don't need anybody to step in and go, now don't beat up on Pastor Joe now. <laughs> at the same time, at the same time, let me say this to all of us, okay, that it is a virtue, that it is a virtue to be teachable and gracious and easily led by those whom God has put in authority over you. It is a virtue to be graceful and gracious and peaceable and easily led by those whom God has put in authority over you. And sometimes, now this is true of me, I'll just speak about myself for a minute. When somebody wants to come alongside me and point something out, my natural inclination is to kind of bow up a little bit and not want to listen. And maybe that's true of you as well. But it is a virtue to be gracious and peaceful and easily led by those whom God has put in authority over you. Amen? And that should be our goal. We should all be teachable by everybody. Amen? Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, sometimes your word steps on our toes. Sometimes we get uncomfortable with what it says to us. Sometimes we confess that we have a hard time obeying in very practical ways. Father, I pray that we would submit our hearts to you. That we, where we are in error, would say to you and to those we are in error against, 
what everybody already knows. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And Father, where these areas touch our heart, we pray that we would have soft hearts and a willingness empowered by your Holy Spirit to be obedient. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.